0: I hope you have a Bible with you this morning. If you don't, no worries. We have some Bibles around here. They're uh, strategically placed on these half walls. The black Bible's there. Even now, you can feel free to get up and grab one of those Bibles, and we'll be in it today. The Bible's a big book. If you're new to it, the Bible can start to feel a little bit smaller if you just know that there are two halves to it. So in the Old Testament... Before Matthew, there is a great problem, sin problem, human rebellion problem, and there is one coming who will be salvation, rescue, redemption. That's the Old Testament. There's one coming. In the New Testament, it identifies him it's Jesus of Nazareth. The New Testament says, There he is, he has come, and it shows us how to respond and how to live in light of his coming. Well, over the last five weeks, we've been in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And today, we'll be in the New Testament book of Mark, the second book of the New Testament, as we start to get close to the end of a study in Mark that we started about a year ago. But before we get to Mark, let me take you on a quick tour of Isaiah, the book we were just in, in a way that holds hands with Mark. Remember, the Old Testament is about one to come. Well, We'll see that in over a dozen different sections of Isaiah. Let me just read this for you. You can turn to Isaiah and follow along if you want. You can just look on the screens behind me if you'd prefer. Maybe you want to write down the Bible references. But either way, buckle up and hold on as I read from Isaiah. Like in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, here's one to come. In Isaiah 11, we read, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." That's one way of saying, "...one's coming who's the source of King David and is also a son of King David. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord." And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In Isaiah 32, verse 1, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And here's what that age will be like when he comes. It would be like streams of water in a dry place. That's why we're called Desert Springs Church. Like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. In the next chapter, verse 17, it just says succinctly, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. In Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, God says. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint, or be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth. Isaiah 49. We're getting there, aren't we? Isaiah 49, verse one. Here, the servant, the one to come, is speaking. And it says, "The Lord called me from the womb, From the body of my mother, He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He had me a polish. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, "You are my servant." And then verse six, "I will make you as a light for the nations." that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In the next chapter, the servant is speaking again. And here it says, "'I gave my back to those who strike "'and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. "'I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, "'but the Lord God helps me. "'Therefore, I've not been disgraced. "'Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, "'and I know that I shall not be put to shame.'" A couple verses later, the servant says, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In chapter 52, God says, Behold, verse 13 this is, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the child of children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Well, we could insert here the whole of chapter 53. We won't do that. If you've never read Isaiah 53, that'd be a great place to start in reading and understanding the Old Testament. But in Isaiah 59, verse 20, we read that a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. In Isaiah 61, the servant is speaking again, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And lastly, one more verse, Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, there are others that I could have read, and each one of those that I did read could say more if we read further in the context. But those verses very much feed into what is recorded all over the New Testament and especially in Mark, we could say. Some 600 years after Isaiah wrote what he did, there's one who came, Jesus of Nazareth. He taught, he healed, he he, he called some to himself, some followed him. Many didn't, many rejected him. At the time of Jesus, one hang-up that many Israelites had was understanding that all the stuff in Isaiah about the one to come was actually referring to one to come, not many. He was one to come. He's a king. He'll be born, and yet he's eternal. It's God himself coming, and yet he'll be rejected. He'll be a suffering servant, and also a king. So many in the gospel, according to Mark, can't seem to see that Jesus is all those things wrapped up in one. They want one kind of Messiah. But we're told as readers of Mark that he's the son of God right from the beginning. We learned that he's the son of David. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one to come. But what kind of Messiah? If you've been with us in our study of Mark, you'll remember that Mark 8 is really a hinge for the whole book. The first half of the book, it's it's all about who this man is. They're perplexed, they're amazed, but they're not sure who he is. But then in chapter eight, Jesus asked Peter directly, Who do you say that I am? And Peter rightly answered, The Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the answer, the long awaited one. And Peter was right, but what kind of Messiah did Peter have in mind? What we learn as we read on that Peter had in mind, like many people in his day, a regal kind of king, a regal kind of Messiah, a warrior kind of king and Messiah. Not a suffering kind, not a servant kind, not a rejected kind. And that's why Jesus, right after Peter's confession, clarified for Peter, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. Well, today as we come to Mark 15, we come to the beginning of that fateful weekend where Christ suffered, where he was rejected, and where he was killed. Here we see in Mark 15 the clashing of kingdoms. The kingdoms of men, and really kingdoms plural, kingdoms of men in the story, versus the kingdom of God. Let's read Mark 15, 1 to 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection... And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And as the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, Well, I think we can investigate this section of Scripture under three headings, the middle one being primary and hence taking us the longest. But the first is this, the innocent is tried. We see in the first five verses here, the innocent is tried. If you remember back six weeks ago, you'll remember that we saw Jesus being tried in chapter 14, that time being tried by the Jewish religious leaders. And they had assembled a kangaroo court in the middle of the night. They had lined up so called witnesses against Jesus, but their charges against Jesus were inconsistent and vague. And yet the chief priest broke about a dozen lines of jurisprudence jurisprudence, to get a conviction. But that was only a Jewish conviction. That was on Thursday night, now we come to Friday morning, and that's why chapter 15 begins as it does, that they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. That's because Jews in this day, living in that Roman-occupied land, couldn't carry out a death sentence of their own. They could say he's guilty, but they must bring him to a Roman official like a governor in order to... See execution take place. They did it first thing in the morning, as soon as it was morning. You see how persistent the priests are in this? I don't want to do anything all night long. Thank you very much, Lionel Richie. All right? I, I, I don't want to do anything in the middle of the night. And they, they take this trial through the night. They're still awake first thing in the morning. They're heading to Pilate. They have to be hasty. It's Passover. They're in Jerusalem. Tensions are high. The crowd has been increasingly excited about this Jesus in recent days. So you might remember that back in Mark 11, these religious leaders were, verse 18, seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And in chapter 14, verse 1, these same leaders were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they bring Jesus in the middle of the night, now in the morning, to Pilate. And presumably with this charge that Jesus had called himself the king of the Jews. That's why Pilate asks in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, you've said so. In other words, you said it, or as you say, it's no doubt an affirmation, but it's also vague. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, you have no idea what that really means. He is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, but he's also the king of the world. He's the king of kings. He's God in the flesh. Who is this Pilate fellow? We actually know a good bit about Pilate, not just from the Bible, but outside the Bible. He was a historical figure. We know things about him. He's a Roman governor. He had famous moments of being stupidly heavy-handed. We read of one in Luke 13 where we find out he killed some Jewish men in the middle of their sacrifices. While they were worshiping God, he killed them. He was also famous for being a political weasel. On the one hand, he was famous for a lust for power, and on the other hand, he was famous for incompetence. He's a real piece of work. Nevertheless, he's the man who would decide the fate of Jesus here. Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem all year round, but during Jewish feasts and festivals, Pilate would set up headquarters in Jerusalem lest Jewish nationalism get out of hand And he needs to squash something in a hurry. And that's what this charge is meant to infer. These religious leaders are suggesting that since Jesus thinks he's the king of the Jews, no doubt he's thinking about a revolt against Rome. So Pilate should end this quickly. It's in his best interest they're inferring. Again, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's more than just the king of the Jews. And he has not come to pick a fight. John's account of this really makes that clear. John 18, verse 36, Jesus says to Pilate there, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. It seems as though Pilate recognizes that Jesus is of A very little political threat. And so the chief priests accused him of many things, trying to get anything to stick. And despite the many charges, Jesus said nothing. He was silent, like a lamb led to the slaughter, it says in Isaiah 53. He was silent despite Pilate's persistence to get Jesus to say more, to make a defense for himself. It's almost like Pilate wanted Jesus to be innocent. Or assumed that he was. But Jesus said nothing. And we read Pilate was amazed at that. Verse 5. Pilate was amazed that Jesus made no defense, no counterpoint, no arguments. Now we who know what's going on in the grand scheme of things, we're not to be amazed that Jesus said nothing at his trial. We can be amazed at many things about the trial, but we're not amazed that Jesus made no defense for himself because we know that he is going to the cross willingly. He said in John 10, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He said to Pilate in John 19, when Pilate asked him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus was innocent. More than innocent, he was righteous. Not just righteous, but he's the king. He will not lead a revolt against Rome, but he will do something far more radical and revolutionary than that. He will begin a whole new creation, a whole new humanity. And it's through the cross and resurrection that that will, that will happen. And so he goes willingly. And that's the best news in all the world for those who really have the ears to hear it, the spiritual ears to hear it. But as for these religious leaders here, they had a good thing going in these days. And Jesus was a speed bump or possibly even a landmine to their money, their power, their sway with the people, their tightrope that they walked with Rome and had navigated relatively successfully until these days. Jesus is either a speed bump or a landmine to these things and so he must go. Secondly, we see that the guilty goes free. We see the innocent is tried. Then we see in this next section, verse 6 to 15, the guilty goes free. At least that's where it ends up. It'll take us a while to get to that point that the guilty goes free. Let's read it again, at least the first few verses of this section. Verse 6 and following. So now we already can see where Pilate's leaning on things in regard to Jesus. We see in verse 10 that he believes that the priests were driven by envy of Jesus. He believes, hence, that the charges here are trumped up, that gamesmanship is going on here. He also believes that Jesus is innocent. He makes that clear in verse 14 when he asks, What evil has he done? And the other gospel accounts draw this out even more. They stress Jesus' innocence even more. They stress Pilate's disconcertedness about Jesus' innocence and the trial that's going on. Pilate's wife even had a bad dream about it all the night before. Apparently there was this tradition for clemency at Passover. That's the word for this, when a prisoner is released. We... Call it in our country a presidential pardon. I looked it up this week. There were there have been twenty thousand presidential pardons so far. That's something, isn't it? Surprised we're not a country in worse trouble with twenty thousand criminals released to the public by the president himself. What a system that is! If anyone knows, by the way, why we do that, I couldn't find that out as I researched presidential pardons this week. I'm not sure what the history is there or the rationale is there. Uh, But you can see why it was happening here in Jerusalem in the first century. It was on Passover. So this is a way for Romans to make nice with Jews. We're going to let one go free every Passover. And Pilate, he's shrewdly connecting dots, isn't he? The people, he's probably thinking, they, they seem to like Jesus, I'll offer Jesus as the released prisoner of the Passover season, and and then hence the people will decide Jesus' fate, not me. And thereby, I'll I'll avoid upsetting the Jewish power players. The people will have decided, not me. But Pilate guesses wrong. Mysteriously, the people don't decide to release Jesus, but Barabbas The chief priests, verse 11 tells us, stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas? Who's Barabbas? Mark tells us that he's a rebel who had committed murder in the insurrection. The insurrection. It, It must have been famous, whatever it was. It must have been well known in those days. John also tells us that Barabbas was a robber on top of it. So he's a murderer. He's a rebel, an insurrectionist. That means he led a small and unsuccessful rebellion against Rome. And he's notorious. Matthew tells us he's notorious. This is a known guy. He's got a name in the story. Every gospel account, all four include it and give us his name. Not a great name Bar Abbas. It means son of a father. That's a really boring name, right? I mean, anyone could be called... I don't know, we're out of names. Was he like the 13th kid or something? like, call him son of dad, you know? That's his name. But we know his name. And this crowd would rather welcome the rebel, insurrectionist, rioter, robber, murderer, the notorious... He's not just famous, he's infamous. This Barabbas they would rather welcome him back to their streets than have Jesus on the loose or even alive anymore. And you wonder why, don't you? Why? I mean, we know the chief priests were involved in stirring them up, but how did that actually work? Why did that work? Were they possibly putting hope in Barabbas as a better revolutionary than Jesus? Is this a choice of Messiahs? And Jesus looks weak. And yes, Barabbas lost and got put in prison, but he did a heck of a job before that, maybe they wonder. Let's see if he can do it again. Perhaps. We know that the crowd is a fickle bunch. We know that from Mark. Now now let me clarify. The crowd here is probably not the same crowd that is around Jesus in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Remember there, the people with the palm branches were very excited about Jesus. And these were likely pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for Passover. But now we find, just a day or two later, we find another group, a crowd in Jerusalem. These are Jerusalem residents. But even this crowd, there was some excitement about Jesus before. The crowd, as a label, The crowd, you can search that in Mark, it it pops up 33 times. It's almost like a a character in his storytelling, an always-changing character, but they always have similar attributes. The crowds in Mark are amazed and marveling and perplexed and astonished at Jesus and sometimes afraid. Sometimes they're flocking to Jesus with great excitement, and other times disappearing quickly like a like an Albuquerque thunderstorm where you think it's gonna come in oh here we're getting rain It just pitters they they were like that they disappear all the time perhaps there's crowd mentality going on here at the trial of Jesus a mob mentality herd mentality we've seen a lot of that in our country in recent years haven't we I'm supposing that uh, it's true of every age in almost any country, but, but at least with sexuality and marriage, there's been something unusual that's happened in our country in the last few years. I, I, I suppose every, every conservative Christian should feel like one day we all woke up and apparently some, all the other people took this pill where it changes your thinking. And we Christians didn't get the pill. We didn't even know there was this pill. Everyone else has a different way of thinking all of a sudden. Crowds are powerful. The populace, the majority, is a powerful thing. In the end, we don't know why this crowd would welcome Barabbas and crucify Jesus. We're not told why. If it seems senseless to you, then yes, note this. Sin is senseless. The rejection of Jesus the King is senseless. It doesn't make any sense. Verse twelve. Pilate again said to them, "said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews?" That's a good question for, for every single one of us in this room. What shall I do with Jesus? What shall we do with Jesus? What did they do? And they cried out again, "Crucify him." Pilate said, why? What what has he done? Verse 14. And the question goes unanswered. They said, all the more. Crucify him. It's almost like a scene in the Roman Colosseum where people's lives were decided with thumbs up and thumbs down. Where life and death was decided for sport and amusement. It's chilling, isn't it? And again, sin is chilling, at least it should be. Rejection of the righteous, humble king should be chilling to us. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, and neither did Pilate. Pilate relented after just a couple rounds of them clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 15, look at those words. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. That's a line that's probably all too close to home for many of us. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. For Pilate, He cared more for a peaceful Passover than for justice. He was willing for an innocent man to be crucified if it staved off a riot one more day. In what ways are you tempted to satisfy the crowd? How much would you give up to satisfy the crowd? Who's your crowd? Who's the crowd for you? Is it Facebook? Twitter? Is it the boss? Is it a spouse? Or kids? Those are the water cooler on Monday morning? This is a science-y kind of town. Maybe your colleagues at the lab are the crowd for you. And they like to laugh about belief in God, and Christianity, or miracles, do they know that you think differently? Sometimes we give in to sin to satisfy the crowd. Some will change their thinking to satisfy the crowd. Some will hide Jesus from plain view to satisfy the crowd. And some of you still won't come to Jesus to satisfy the crowd. And you're almost there where you know almost that it's true, that, that what he said he would do, he did, who he is, he is. You're close to believing it, but you can't embrace it because you need to satisfy the crowd. Don't do that. Pilate satisfied the crowd, even though he saw Jesus as innocent, maybe even nice, harmless. Maybe he was rooting for him. Nevertheless, to him, in the end, Jesus was disposable, optional. At first, Pilate was a little reluctant to pull the trigger on an innocent man. But in the end, he was pragmatic. He was self-serving. He was expedient. Do you notice here that Pilate tried to play neutral with Jesus? But as we can see, There is no neutrality with Jesus. And in the process of all this, Barabbas, the rebel, is released. And here, now, the guilty goes free. The guilty goes free. The righteous one is condemned and the unrighteous one goes scot-free. Jesus' innocence is emphasized throughout this, isn't it? In Barabbas' guilt, his famous undeniable guilt of thievery and murdering and rioting and insurrection, shown to us. Contrast. You know, while none of the gospel writers teach us to read the story of Barabbas as like an illustration or a parable for our own salvation as Christians, I think we should. I think we should. I I think we can't help but see something of ourselves in Barabbas. I think we can't see something of salvation in this exchange. I mean, those of us who have experienced true and saving redemption, we just can't help but think of our own experience when we read what happened to Barabbas. In John 11, there's an example of of something happening that that John interprets in an illustrative way, a parabolic way, in this you-can't-help-but-think-of-Jesus sort of way. Listen to this. John 11, verse 48, here the chief priests and the Pharisees talk about Jesus, and they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, there's the fear. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, verse 50, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John explains it. He did not say this of his own accord. In other words, he did it accidentally and prophetically, being high priest that year he accidentally prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, Caiaphas said in an accidentally illustrative way, it is better for us that one guy dies than the nation die. And so with Barabbas' clemency here, Mark 15, it's a kind of parable of substitution, of redemption, of salvation. Barabbas is a walking parable in a multi-layered one because we too were rebels deserving of death and we went free if we're in Christ, if we're saved. This rebel deserving of death Went free because the righteous one died instead. We, by our nature, are just like Barabbas in our actions. We're rebels. We're revolting. We're insurrecting, if that's a verb. And we are just like Barabbas in our plight because of sin. We are sentenced. We are guilty. Apart from Christ, we are bound. And we are awaiting our doom. And we as Christians, for those who trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness, we undeservedly, inexplicably, we've been released from the bondage and death of our sin to the liberty and life that we have in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he agrees with me. He says, you and I may fairly take our stand by the side of Barabbas. We have robbed God of his glory. We have been seditious traitors against the government of heaven. If he who hates his brother is a murderer, then we also have been guilty of that sin. Here we stand before the judgment seat. The prince of life is bound for us, and we are allowed to go free. The Lord delivers us and acquits us, while the Savior, without spot or blemish or shadow or fault is led forth to crucifixion. It's just as we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's just as Jesus said. In Mark 10, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. A swapping. A swapping of payments, a swapping of blessings. In John 8, Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And as Peter looked back and thought about all this later on, first Peter 3, he said, Christ also suffered once for sins. The unrighteous one for the, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. Take a good long look at Barabbas here. He is us. And yet we're not like Barabbas in this story in that there is for us a rest of the story. There isn't the rest of the story with Barabbas. Did you notice that? We're not told whether his judicial and physical pardon ever led to a spiritual and eternal pardon. There's one bit of evidence in church history, maybe second century or so, that, that tells us that Barabbas was converted. It's possible. I guess there are two movies, which I haven't seen, called Barabbas, and uh, they explore that theme of Barabbas' later conversion. But regardless, we, as Christians, have a rest of the story, You see, every Christian saved and redeemed and made free by the blood and resurrection of Christ is not freed to return to the revolt against him, but instead freed to cling to him as savior and friend, to be the soul-satisfying living water that we quench. In Christ we are freed from our eternal doom We are also freed from our former ways. We are inexplicably freed from the massive, unimaginable debt that we owed. And hence, we return in thanks and praise. We are not like those nine lepers who were healed and didn't return giving thanks. We Christians are like that one leper who was healed and returned in great thanks to Jesus. That's the rest of our story. We're Barabbas' 2.0. Well, we must move along. Thirdly, this is where the cross and crown meet. In the rest of our passage, we see the cross and crown meet. After being scourged, he was handed over. Let's read verse 16 and following. The soldiers led him away inside the palace. They called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. This is a mock coronation. It's an expose of wickedness. I mean, the beatings are bad enough, but the mockery, the scourging, just the scourging that's mentioned in verse 15. The Jews had a limit, 40 minus one. The Romans had no limit with scourging. This wasn't just a, a leather whip. It was a big whip with several extensions at the end, and tied to those extensions were shards of glass, rocks, whatever they could find that would dig in and hurt. And when that thing latched onto your back, it didn't just get skin, it got muscle and it got bone and they yanked it out. Many people died from the scourging before their crucifixion ever happened. Here it's described for us in a word, scourged. What wickedness. What wickedness. The righteous king was right before them. And this mock coronation is just dripping with irony. Because everything they say is true. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is Philippians 2. Before it happens, they just don't know it. Jesus is the king. And he is a suffering king. He is bearing shame and scoffing rude. Just a crown of thorns. Are so rich in its complexity and its meaning. It's The, the Crown of Thorns is meant to mock him for thinking he was king of the Jews. And of course to give pain and humiliation. But it's actually a strangely fitting thing for this kind of king, for this kind of Messiah, for this suffering servant. He doesn't look like a king, I know. There's no army. There are no followers. There are no friends and close advisors. There's no weapon. There's nothing regal. There's no nothing. It's just a guy in some shabby clothes. And he really is the king. And this really was the plan all along. He said it in chapter 8 and 9 and 10 and other places. His path to to rightful glory walked the road to Calvary. Neither the crown of thorns nor the cross is the end of the story. On the third day, he was raised, raised victoriously. The plan all along was suffering first and glories to follow. Glories in the resurrection, glory in the ascension, glory in that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God right now. He reigns from on high in a realm that we cannot see, but one day will, and all will. The suffering king is the savior and shepherd. He's gentle and humble. But he is also this world's judge, and he will judge. He does symbolically, have a sword coming out of his mouth and he will execute judgment someday. There is a reckoning with him that is required of all of us. No matter what you think of him and no matter how much you want to ignore him, if you do. So I ask you again, what shall you do with this Jesus? Or what have you done with this Jesus? With the clashing of kingdoms, there is no threat to his kingdom even though it looks like his kingdom is destroyed by these soldiers, governor, and priests. The kingdoms of men, with all of their jockeying for power, and with all of their political power grabs, is of no concern for the kingdom of God here, for he reigns. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Remember one of the verses I read in Isaiah was chapter 50, verse 9, where the suffering servant said, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. So let's put that to the test here in the scene of Mark 15. When's the last time you gave serious, careful attention and thought to Caiaphas, the high priest? Hopefully, not in a long time, if ever. That's good. How about Pilate? When's the last time you really pondered Pilate? Tried to understand Pilate? Pilate's not only a largely forgotten figure in our own day, but he only reigned another year or two after this trial. And then he was exiled to die on an island for being an incompetent leader. That's Pilate. When's the last time you really thought about Rome and the great Roman Empire or so it was I don't mean to offend any Italians that are here but you know I'm sure Rome's a very pretty city that's kind of my point isn't it it's just a city I mean we're a long ways away from the what was it four million square miles of territory that Rome occupied in its heyday? Now Rome's a city. But the servant, the Messiah, the eternal one, the king, who came and died and was raised and now lives and lives forevermore, he says, who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. So don't look to those with power. Don't look to those who are popular. And don't look to the populace, to the people. The answers aren't there. Look to Jesus. Ask yourself, what little kingdom of yours is clashing with Jesus? You can fight for your kingdom now, but it will not remain. Now, Peter uh, preached in Acts 3 a little sermon where he preached on Barabbas. So as we bring this to a close, let me read what Peter said about this scene we've been studying today. It's a great, great sermon. It's a short sermon, unlike mine. And maybe I should have just read what Peter said here for our time together this morning. But here we see in Acts 3... After another crowd, another great crowd is gathered around marveling that a man has just been healed, Peter says this in verse 13, explaining all this. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And no, brothers. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Not that they're not culpable. But they didn't really believe that this was the Messiah. They should have. You acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, this he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What a great sermon it is. Opposition to Jesus is senseless, like the crowd Opposition to Jesus is sometimes vehement, like the religious leaders, even more so the soldiers. But opposition to Jesus is always useless. That's what Peter's sermon tells us. But Peter's sermon also tells us that opposition to Jesus is optional. There is another way. Repent and turn back to him, turn to him. Be forgiven of your sins. Your sins because he died can be blotted out. Would you believe that today? Christian, would you find more rest and hope in that today than you did yesterday? That's the Christian life. Keep doing it until Jesus comes back and gives us even more faith and joy in our salvation than what we could even know in this world now. No, as we read passages like this in Mark 15, it was for us. It was for us. The New Testament uses that little phrase, for us, all over the place. As it describes what happened at the cross and resurrection, it just inserts this all over, for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by, by becoming a curse for us. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. There's a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain of his flesh. He laid down his life for us. Maybe today you'd read Mark 15 as a a unit, a whole, including the crucifixion scene, and and you would read it with that in mind, for us. He said nothing at his defense for us. He was bound for us. He was beaten for us. He was whipped and ridiculed for us. He was willing to go to the cross for us. And he rose again on the third day for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, give us, as we prayed earlier, eyes to see, hearts to believe. We pray, Lord, that you would give salvation to those here who are. On the cusp, you are working on them and working in them and drawing them to yourself. We pray, Lord, you would reel them in for your namesake and for their salvation. We pray that as Christians, Lord, that we would look at Christ's vindication and know and believe that his promises are true and trustworthy, that he is with us. And if he is with us and for us, then who can be against us? What can men do to us? Let us look to Jesus, we pray, Lord. Help us to serve and love others as he served and loved us to the end. And let us, as Christians, we pray, Lord, proclaim this glorious gospel with boldness and joy to those who haven't yet come to believe. Help us, Lord, to say and to sing that our story is this, guilty and vile and helpless we, the spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. May it be so because of Jesus, the risen one, we pray. Amen.